Being Black in America comes with its challenges. However, we understand that enlightenment through education is the oppressor's worst fear. By bridging the gap between academia and the people, our purpose is to equip you with knowledge that breaks down barriers during your journey towards truth and freedom. Welcome to the Black and Highly Dangerous Podcast. Yo, yo, Dave, what's going on, Scooty? You know, um, I'm tired. I am <laughs> seriously tired. Um, I partied all night long for John's graduation party. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So for those of you who do not know, uh, my husband, John, just finished residency, just finished all the training. He's officially done with everything. And so done. We partied. <laughs> We party pretty hard. Like his his family goes hard. Like we um, had a party at a hotel, and we had an open bar. And they're the type of people that's like, oh, your your cup is empty. <laughs> Are you gonna <laughs> they're like Utah. They're like, oh, like let's keep you, going. You would, you would get along with them very well. <laughs> that's what I saw a uh, little bit of the Facebook live you posted. John was yeah. getting the boy, the boo, yeah. that footwork. <laughs> yeah, it was it was so fun. And I told you, so I didn't tell the audience, but I kind of shared with Ty that. So for John's graduation present, I pulled off the biggest surprise of 2018. Mm-hmm. Um, so John's car, um, he has a fairly up-to-date car, but for whatever reason, the paint just was awful. It was peeling the hood. It was just completely stripped. So when he went out of town last week, he didn't know, but I set up an appointment at a local um, auto body shop to have it painted while he was away. And I had to come up with a very strange story for him to believe why his car was missing when he came back home. I told him that I was drinking a smoothie while I was in his car and that there was a big spider in the car and I I smelled I spilled smoothie everywhere. And so I had to take it to a detail shop and they had to shampoo it. I don't know. I don't think he cared enough to like actually investigate it, but he, he fell for it. That's good. That's good. Like I said, as long as he didn't ask no more questions, follow-up questions, you you it could it, it could work out. So he didn't, but he was like, what did you do? Kill somebody? In there? <laughs> like, uh, like, why is it gone so long? I'm just like, it was everywhere. The smoothie was everywhere. <laughs> That's what you been up to? Nothing much, really. Um, just kind of been chilling a little bit. I actually been doing a lot of for these past couple of weeks every day. I haven't missed a day yet. Uh, 15 days straight doing yoga and meditating every morning. Okay. You know? Trying getting to, your mental health right last mental month health was mental right. health month. Yep. And you're you're taking it into June. That's really good. Yeah, I'm trying to get it right. You know, give this thing a try. And, and it's been good. Like I say, like, it's uh, that's what I do to start off my mornings. And it's been having a really good, like, effect throughout the day. You're just starting your, your, your days off in a really good place. Um, so, yeah. Uh-huh. So I'm going to see how long I keep it going. You know, make a habit out Be of like it. Be like Ty, y'all. <laughs> Be to, like Ty. <laughs> trying to make a habit out of it. See where it goes. Um, mm-hmm. But all right, let's get into this uh, Oh Lord news of the week Let's see what, yes. you, see what you got for us Yes <laughs> Hello and welcome to BHD News Where we give you the most current and eye-opening Oh Lord news of the week Join us as we present news that'll make you want to say 
Okay, so I'm going to start out with, you know, because I just want to discuss something, but you guys might have already seen this on the news. So Thursday, last Thursday, uh, Melania Trump, uh, Donald Trump's wife, in 80 degree weather, decided to board a plane to Texas to visit children who have been separated from their families, um, who are traumatized. And she decides in 80 degree weather to wear a jacket that says, I don't really care. Do you? <laughs> Did you hear about that? Yeah, I saw that. I saw that. I was shaking my head when I saw that. Because it's kind of like out of all the things you could have worn, you decided to wear a $35 Zara jacket that says you don't care. Like, come on. I think the thing that bothers me about that is like a lot of people pretend like, oh, she's this victim of her husband. Let's feel sorry for her. And I'm just like, nah, you know, water seeks its own level. I'll just say that. Yeah, she she's playing a lot of games, man. I don't know. This is, this is like a reality show we'd be watching you know this is not the typical acts of the president and now the first lady of what we're used mm-hmm. to seeing and that's for sure and that's some kind of petty stuff as well trying to yes. a little statement yes. 35 dollar statement <laughs> get out of here with that right? <laughs> mm-hmm. but we do care we do care we do okay so we have previously talked about overprotective fathers mine being one of them but i think that this dad takes the cake so a white police officer um, did not like who her daughter was dating, which happened to be an 18-year-old uh, black guy named Makai. So while she was out with her boyfriend, the father used police resources to track his daughter's computer, um, the IP address, so that he could pull over <laughs> the guy with his daughter in the car. Oh. And yes, he threatens to arrest him. He tried to um, threaten like uh, the guy's mom. They were in front of um, the guy's house and he tried to do an illegal search inside the house. But after he became aggressive, the mom said, no, like you need a warrant. And so when all of that failed, he accused his daughter of um, attempting suicide and he kind of like it was technically illegal. He took her from the car, locked her in a police car because he claimed that um, she was suicidal and he needed to like, (laughs) that's crazy. (laughs) He needed to take her and, you know, I guess seek help for her. But ultimately she just didn't want her with a boyfriend, but luckily he was fired. Mm -hmm. That's good. That's good. I mean, that's a crazy overprotective dad right there. (laughs) That's taking it to the extreme with that one. Uh Mm -hmm. But yeah. And so, (laughs) mm -hmm. and the, you know, like, again, it started with the son, you know, then he's trying to do like the search and seizure, you know, with the mom. And when all those fails, okay, I'll just accuse my daughter of being suicidal because I don't like what's going on. That's crazy. Yeah. Real crazy. Uh, Definitely old Lord newsworthy. (laughs) Okay, so this next story adds to our long list of what you can't do while black. Um, So, yeah. So we've heard of the lady who called people on the police for barbecuing in a park where you're allowed to barbecue Mm -hmm. for calling the police on a dad for walking his child in a stroller in the park Mm -hmm. for sleeping on your couch in your dorm room. Mm -hmm. 
And all of these were adults. Cash in a check, cash in a check. Cash in a check, cash in a check from a bank that actually issued the check. Okay. Yes. Well, this week we have a new name. We have a new hashtag called Permit Patty mm-hmm. because there was an eight-year-old black girl who was selling waters um, in San Francisco and she called the police on a little girl for selling waters. Yeah. Oh my goodness. When will it end? Man? Now the lady end? claimed, you know, well, first of all, I don't know. These pictures are always like a hot mess because they always have the same look, little mm-hmm. smirk on their face. Like I'm going to get you. I'm going to show you. I'm going to call the police mm-hmm. on you. So we have that look. She's a new meme now. And so I guess because of the backlash, the lady finally, you know, talked to reporters. And, you know, she said that she didn't call the police um, because, you know, the little girl was black. But she was tired of, I guess, the little girl saying that she was selling waters Mm because they were like announcing it to people. (laughs) Girl, just move this. She's going to call the cops on an eight-year-old, man. Like, that just sounds crazy. Yes. And the crazy thing about it is like, okay, she has no room to talk because you want to know what she sells. What she sue? You want to know what that? She sells marijuana. <laughs> <laughs> so you're going to be mad at eight-year-old selling bottles of water while you over here selling marijuana. <laughs> yes, girl, living. you sell weed. That's crazy, yes. man. <laughs> That's crazy. i actually seen reports that all her, like, I think like three of the top people that she does business with have all, you know, said they're not doing business with her any longer because of her actions. Well, that's good because, you know, money is where it hurts people. Mm -hmm. It's so silly. Come on, let this little girl sell her water. Let her sell her water, man. Come on. So now you can't be black and eight years old and trying to sell little bottles of water to to people going by. That's crazy. I mean, I got to do a little research because it's weird because they said she owns a weed for dogs business. So you're giving dogs weed? Yeah, it's like she owns like um, a dispensary or something like that. And then she makes like, yeah, like doggy biscuits with marijuana laced in or something like that. That's so and weird. they sell it at these weed dispensaries. And so now the, then people are like, I'm not selling your product anymore. The people that, you know, had it the most. So I don't even, that, that don't even seem morally right. <laughs> I mean, that is a bit weird, too. Like, not only are you selling weed, but you selling weed to dogs. Like, right. like come on now. <laughs> <laughs> Like, come on, man. I'm surprised you had any supporters the, anyway. an eight-year-old for selling water and trying to call the cops. Man, mm-hmm. the audacity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this was kind of another news story. I just kind of want to get your opinion because it, it kind of speaks to today's topic about religion. Mm-hmm. So in Arizona, there was a pharmacist. So a, a woman. Um, she found out she was pregnant, but um, for whatever reason, um, she's she had been having like issues with miscarriages in the past. So her doctor had been monitoring her. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was apparent to her doctor that she was on the verge of miscarrying, you know, some, there was some issue and the doctor gave her, um, or encouraged her, I guess, to make it easier on her body to, um, ter- you know, terminate the pregnancy before the like official miscarriage happened. Mm. And so he gave her the option for a, 
like surgical abortion. We talked about that on a Mother's Day episode mm-hmm. or a, a medical abortion where she could take a pill. She decided to take the pill. Um, it was a hard it was hard for her. You know, this was a pregnancy that she actually wanted. And when she went to the pharmacy, um, the pharmacist refused to fill it for her based on religious uh, reasons. Mm-hmm. Now, it was at a Walgreens pharmacy. Well, I'll explain later, but tell me, what do you think about that? Do you Uh, think pharmacists should be able to do that? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I know people can usually go to pharmacists, pharmacy for advice and consult and be consulted and consultations and stuff like that. Um, So it's probably somewhat within their realm, but maybe that's a bit outside their expertise because it seems to not really be talking about medicine Well, no. So what happened was the doctor gave the prescription and the pharmacist refused to fill it. Oh, okay. Well, no. I mean, you can't do that. Like, how can you refuse to fill somebody's prescription? Like if they need it, you just can't be like, nah, like that's, yeah, that's, that should be unethical in a lot of ways. Yeah. Well, Arizona is like one of like a few states that actually allows pharmacists to um, refuse to fill fulfill a prescription for like religious reasons. Mm. But the kick is if they don't do it, what they're supposed to do is the next pharmacist like that might be standing next to them or a manager in the store. They're supposed to get the manager to like assist the customer. So it's like, okay, they can personally refuse to do it, but they can't be like, Oh, go find another pharmacy or something like that. Like they're supposed to like actually help the person and they didn't I think the person like actually like lectured her without knowing like okay this was an unfortunate circumstance Mm. for her um but I don't know I was reading that and I wanted your opinion but it also made me think about today's topic which is about religion and religious beliefs um and particularly within the black community yeah yeah I mean it's a conversation we were excited to have um we've been trying to have it for a little while on this podcast but really trying to dig into deep talking about religion within the black community, its role from a historical perspective, its role and conversation about the role of religion in the black community today. And has it changed? And if so, what are those changes? And we speak to Dr. Hart, whose expertise is definitely in this area. Uh, we not only talk about black religion from you know traditional standpoint, but we also ta- tackle things like atheism, being agnostic, et cetera, how things of that nature have changed and be weaved into the DNA of, of black uh, of the black culture within our society over time. So it's a really uh, enlightening conversation. I think you all will get a lot from it for sure. Mm-hmm. I agree. And, bef- I agree. and before you even move into that too, I just want to take a moment to talk about what has happened also in the news again with another police shooting with uh, that's been going on. You heard about it, Daphne, in Pittsburgh with Antoine Rose? I did. I yeah, did hear about it. Yeah. Um, you know, it's just crazy because again, we're in this situation. I think what what frustrates me the most, and I think police departments need to start being held accountable, is that the police officer that shot and killed this teenager who was running away um, was fired from another police force, you know, uh, either a few weeks before he got accepted into this new position. And he was sworn in a few hours before this killing, but he was fired because he was being overly aggressive. I think he was a police department, a university police department, police officer. And he got fired because he being overly aggressive to students and having a lot of same, these kind of mannerisms. And then this new police department picks him up knowing this history. And then the first day on the job, he goes and takes the life of Antoine Rose. Um, so, you know, this stuff, this stuff, we have to begin to figure out ways to change the system. But one, I think, is making sure that these police officers, 
police departments are held accountable for hiring bad police officers already. Like they need to be held fully accountable. I don't know what kind of sanctions should be put in place, but they knew what they were getting, the kind of product they were getting, and they put it out on the streets. And now a kid and a family and a community has lost a life because of this stupid decision they made. Agreed. There has to be some accountability in the same way that, you know, everybody else records follow them, police records, <laughs> their abuses. I mean, once you get fired, I feel like you should not be another place. You should not be able to be a police officer. No, again. I, agree. Like, I agree. Like if they say you're a bad police officer in one place, then you cannot be, you should not be able to go and be a police officer mm-hmm. somewhere else. And this is like, you know, this is not the first time we've seen this, but it's just, it just sucks because, you know, people's lives are getting lost because of these bad decisions by people hiring other mm-hmm. officers with this kind of history. And so, I mean, shout out to the university for recognizing the behavior, doing the right thing and firing him and getting him off the force. And now shame on you, the new police department that actually hired him in the Pittsburgh area. And now we have a live loss and you should be held accountable. And hopefully the protests and everything going on will make sure that that happens. But I just want no, to yeah. no, yeah, no, yeah. I, I definitely <laughs> have been reading about that, and it's like tragic. It's like it happens far too often, and it's just, mm, mm-hmm. yeah, it, yeah. Need to do better, folks. But all right, all right. But let's get into today's topic. Uh, talk about religion, and uh, we'll catch up with y'all afterwards, as always. And you know, hopefully, you enjoy the conversation as much as we did. Talk to you in a bit. The Black Christian Church has long been a cornerstone of African-American family life, political activism, and social change. However, in recent years, some social activists have called into question the relevance of the Black Christian Church in the lives of millennials and the continuing fight for freedom. Today, we tackle this topic by interviewing Dr. William David Hart, a professor at McAllister College whose research examines the intersection of religion, ethics, and politics. During this conversation, we discuss the historical and contemporary role of the church in the Black community, the rise of alternative religious practices in the Black community, and the role of the church in recent social change movements. Welcome, Dr. Hart. Thank you. Okay. So we always get these interviews started by asking our guests to share a little bit more about their background and what led them to their particular field of study. So what inspired you to study religion and, you know, just a little bit more about you? Well, a little bit about my my background. I'm one of those uh, rare black uh, folks. I was born and reared in Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, my folks were Okies who went west to California and wound up in Arizona. And so uh, I'm a Phoenician. Um, I, I imagine it was around 16 or 17. I thought that I might be being called to the ministry. I uh, come from a fairly devout family. have a younger brother who's an ordained uh, pastor. My father was a deacon. I uh, have an older brother who's an elder. And so it was natural for me to think that I would have some kind of vocation in religion and in the church. Fortunately, uh, that was not my call. I don't think the church would have been good for me, and uh, I certainly would not have been good uh, for the church. Um, so my, my, my academic study of religion emerged out of my, my devotional interest. And over time, uh, my devotional interests started to recede, and I became primarily uh, interested in 
religion as a subject of study. Mm. So when we talk about, um, you know, religion and the black community, where does religion fit in the black community um, historically and more con- in contemporary times? I mean, well, historically, um, religion, um, I mean, if you think about it historically, I- I'll begin with the boys. The boys talks about uh, the fact that the black church uh, was the first institution in the black community. The black church precedes the black family. Uh, the black family was disaggregated or the African family was disaggregated by slavery. Uh, and families could not operate as families under the conditions of slavery. And so families had to actually constitute themselves after the abolition of slavery. So actually, the black church community existed as an institution before the black family did. And so that itself, I think, is the best measure we can have of how important uh, religion in general and the black Christian church in particular was to uh, black life, African-American life, uh, under the conditions of slavery and, and after slavery as well. Du Bois talks about the the, the church being sort of like an all-purpose institution. It was like a black commons. You think about black people emerging from slavery into a world that was increasingly, you know, segregated, uh, where they didn't have access to various institutions and services. So in a way, the black church was an all-purpose institution that provided uh, whatever kinds of needs black people had. So it wasn't just a religious institution. It was an all-purpose institution. So it was extremely important, um, in the early period. I think what's happened, you know, uh, today is that uh, there's been a lot of differentiation uh, in the black community uh, with the growth of freedom. Uh, Black people have more opportunities, they have more choices. And so black people aren't as dependent on the church as they used to be. We can get all kinds of needs and desires met outside the church in other kinds of institutions, other kinds of venues. And so the church doesn't quite serve the same function today as it did in the past. Although I think that some mega churches are trying to mimic uh, what the black church of old did. Mm. It's interesting that you say that because I often I participate in a lot of online communities and I feel like one of the biggest complaints that I hear from some people about, you know, the black church um, is that they aren't doing enough for the community. So it's interesting. And I would agree that I do see a lot of mega churches, you know, trying to be there in terms of child care, and, you know, job uh, economic opportunities and things of that nature. But um, I, I can see that progression, although I didn't necessarily experience it myself. Um, so in, in thinking about that, uh, people within the black community, of course, know a lot about, you know, black, you know, the black church. Um, but thinking about, uh, more generally, what are some myths and misconceptions about black religion? I think that we can think about black religion as a mirror. Uh, when, People, and I don't just mean non-black people, I think some black people too. And I think when they look at at black religion, uh, they see black religion as as deviant uh and 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 deficient, um as as backward, uh as a site 
of 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 dogmatic thinking, um, of anti intellectualism. I think that those sentiments can be found across uh, racial lines, and I think they mirror uh, the perception of, of of black people in general. So, in other words, I, I see I see perceptions of the black church, of black religion in general. Uh, as a mirror for how black people are perceived within a larger society. <clears throat> so mm-hmm. when, yeah, when, so, and I think, you know, even bringing into kind of what we're seeing in today's time um, overall, and we're talking about religious practices and even within some of my own networks, I've hear, you know, people who are, you know, people who are black colleagues or friends of mine who talk about, um, you know, maybe not fully adopting to the practices of like, Christianity, right, which has been kind of the dominant religion uh, for African, African-Americans in this country. Um, so, you know, there's probably this rise in alternative religious practices within the black community. So what are some of these alternative traditions and pretty much how large is this population compared compared to black Christians? And I'm sure black Christians are still overwhelming the overwhelmingly the majority. Uh, but what are some different looks to tra- uh, tradi- uh, non-traditional religious practices within the community? I mean, you're right. The vast majority of, of, of black people who identify themselves as religious will identify themselves as Christian. The vast majority of them will belong to a narrow range of, of Protestant denominations, especially Baptist, Methodist, and, and, and Pentecostal. Uh, but there are other ways in which black people are religious in this, in this country, and there always have been. Um, there's always been a Muslim presence um, uh, in the black community. Uh, we think about Islam among black people as something that began in the 20th century with the emergence of the nation of Islam, but that's not quite true. Um, scholars tell us that anywhere between five and 20% on the high end of Africans bought to the new world were Muslims. If that high-end number is correct, then Islam quite possibly was the largest single religious affiliation among Africans brought to the New World. We don't tend to think about that and about how that forces us to sort of rethink uh, what it means to be Black and, and religious. So Islam goes back to the very beginning of Black people's presence in, in, in the New World. Uh, of course, uh, Islamic affiliation was destroyed for the most part uh, under the conditions of slavery. It was very, very difficult for enslaved uh, Muslims to practice their faith. Over time, uh, it more or less died out and went underground. And there was a revival of Islam uh, in the early 20th century. So Islam clearly is the probably the largest uh, non-Christian form of religious affiliation among among black people, among African-Americans, they're probably somewhere just south of, of a million black Muslims. And I don't mean Nation of Islam Muslims. I mean Muslims who are black of all varieties of, of Islam in the United States. Somewhere between 25% and 30% of all Muslims in the United States are black. There are roughly 3.3 million Muslims in the United States. And again, 25 to 30 percent of them are African-American Muslims. Then there are what I would call New World Yoruba forms of, of religion as well. And you'll be 
most familiar with these if you think about, for example, uh, the religion of Santeria, uh, which is based in Cuba, but is practiced in the United States as well, uh, in part because of you know, significant uh, immigration from Cuba and other Spanish-speaking uh, countries in the Caribbean where Santeria is, is practiced. Candomblé, which is a closely associated religion, which is practiced among among Black people and non-Black people as well. Uh, in, in Brazil, uh, 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 you have a form of Orisha worship in, in Trinidad. So there are a variety of forms of Yoruba-based religion uh, that are practiced throughout the New World and that are practiced in the United States. Their numbers are very small. I know that one scholar estimates that that there may be somewhere around, if you combine both African-American and Latino practitioners, that there may be somewhere in around a half a million uh, practitioners of, of, of those religious traditions. And they're growing among especially uh, educated, middle-class Black Americans who are nationalist or Afrocentric in orientation and who want to uh, reconnect uh, with their traditional African past. Mm, that was a really good uh, history lesson. Yeah. I actually had no idea um, about some of the things you mentioned, especially like um, the history of like a, a Muslim tradition um, among uh, Black Americans. Um, thank you for that. Uh, so thinking about religious practice, um, especially among uh, newer generations, um, I was reading a Pew Research report that suggested that upwards of 83% of African Americans believe in God, 75% believe that religion is important, 83% pray at least weekly, and it was like 75% pray daily, uh, but only 47% regularly attend church. Um, do you think you can give us a little bit of insight of what might be contributing to what might seem like a contradiction? People who seem deeply religious or spiritual, but um, aren't necessarily practicing or, or maybe even leaving the black church. I, I guess I don't find that discrepancy uh, between how people describe themselves and their actual practices that surprising. There's often a gap between the way we describe ourselves and, and what, you know, objective observer can see when they, um, when they investigate. Um, I don't think that that gap is going to be any different than any gap you'd find between profession uh, and practice. So that, that would be my first response. Um, and I think you have to keep in mind that a lot of, of professed believers are nominal. Uh, you know, they were raised in, in a predominantly Christian culture. The ideal of not being believers perhaps has never really occurred to them. Um, they may have grown up thinking that religious affiliation is somehow part of what it means to be a black person. They could not imagine saying that they were not religious, but the notion of actually being involved in the institutional practice of religion uh, doesn't appeal to them. I know a lot of people like that. I know people who follow religious services on the radio and television, but who will not set foot in a church, which suggests that there's something about 
the institutional expression of religion, something about the the social dynamics of religion within that institution uh, that they find unattractive. Yeah. And before we get to the next question, I want to kind of go back a little bit because earlier on when we enduring, when you first started talking about yourself, you had said that, you know, throughout your life experience that kind of your devotion began to gradually maybe recede over time as you maybe became more involved with academia, what have you. Can you just expound upon that a little bit for from your just personal experience for our listeners to see what led you to this um, to that transition and and maybe some of the factors that contributed to that? I think it was um, a variety of, of experiences. There's no doubt that 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 the pursuit of of, of, of higher education, uh, reading critical material, scholarly material outside of reading the sacred texts and reading you know Sunday school, you know a kind of literature, uh, fundamentally transformed my understanding of what of what Christianity was and what religion in general was. And so I developed a set of intellectual tools that led me to become increasingly skeptical of the kinds of claims that were made uh, within Christianity in particular and really across religions in general. And I think that probably combined also with certain moral objections that I had uh, to the way in which uh, religious traditions represented deity, represent the obligations that the humans had to deity, so forth and so on. And then more broadly speaking, just my own sort of, you know, political sort of, of orientations. I think all of these things sort of melded together. And over time, uh, my sort of devotional interest in religion uh, began to to dissipate. Mm. So, I mean, actually on that topic, um, I had actually been wondering, so atheism and, you know, being agnostic there, you know, there's a difference. Um, these are often like taboo topics in the black community, but I've seen recently where um, black atheists and um, those who are agnostic have become more vocal about their views. Um, And I'm pretty sure there are many myths and misconceptions about atheism and being, uh, you know, agnosticism. I don't I don't know if that's a word, Um, but can you provide our listeners with insight into, um, you know, Atheist, uh, atheism in the black community, the size, demographic characteristics. You, you actually kind of mentioned that a little bit about um, like middle class and uh, higher education uh, status. But if you want to add anything else, that would be awesome. Yeah, I mean, I think I think when it comes to atheism, though, it's not just a a a, a middle in upper class phenomena. There have always been poor and working class people who have been skeptics. You know, they look at their own lives uh, and they think about their lives in light of the kinds of claims made within their religious tradition, within their church, uh, and they find a discrepancy to which they can't reconcile. Uh, And so there have always been people of all, at all social strata, uh, who've been agnostics. And an agnostic is simply a person who who claims that they don't know whether there is a God or not. An atheist doesn't necessarily say they know there isn't a God, but an atheist certainly is a person who says that they don't believe that there is a God. They don't necessarily claim that they can prove that there isn't a God, but they believe that there isn't a God. 
so that's that's the uh, the difference between uh, an atheist uh, and, and an agnostic. Um, I think that there have always been probably more atheists among African Americans than uh, statistical survey kind of research can reveal. Uh, we know that people have a tendency not to be, uh, uh, you know, thoroughly honest uh, when 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 researchers come around. I think that there have always been atheists in hiding, as I would describe it, uh, in black communities. I think that there are probably a, a small minority of black people who are actually a part of church communities, religious communities, who who are atheists. But because atheism is such a taboo orientation um, in black communities, I think that many people uh, feel that they don't have any choice. So they have to be who they are uh, on the down low, so to speak. Um, I mean, we can look at this, you know, by analogy with, with the way in which many people you know, historically in black communities, but of course, not only in black communities have had to, you know, if, if they were gender non-conforming or engaged in forms of sexuality that were not re regarded as standard, had to sort of do those things, you know, uh, um, you know, behind closed doors. I think the same thing is true with 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 religious uh, faith, religious belief and affiliation as well. So I, I would make the, the sort of radical you know, argument that there's probably a minority of people who are in black churches uh, who are who are atheists as well. I think that people become atheists for a variety of reasons. Uh, they may have uh, moral objections to their religious tradition. They may think that their religious tradition, the way it treats certain classes of people, what it expects of people, uh, the way it it portrays God that all of those things raise moral objections for them, uh, and so they may uh, th they may decide to, uh, you know, jettison religion uh, for those reasons. Some people become atheists primarily for political reasons. They can't believe in a God that would tolerate the kinds of cruelties and injustices they see in the world, and the standard kinds of arguments for why it is that an all-powerful all-knowing and all-good uh, uh, God would tolerate these kinds of things simply aren't persuasive uh, for them. Um, with growing levels of first literacy and now of higher education among, among African Americans, I think that, um, that agnosticism and atheism will increasingly uh, uh, be attractive to you know, uh, an increasing number of, of, uh, of, of African-Americans. Mm -hmm. Okay. I can, I think I can see that too. I think as, especially within my, again, my own networks and as people began to, like you said, um, increase literacy or just having a different understanding as far as, you know, what has been taught traditionally either in the home or at school, um, especially with black Americans in this country. Um, I see a lot of, I don't want to say it's resistance, but a lot of questioning um, and, and more of a critique as far as just kind of willingly or just unwillingly or just kind of like unconsciously accepting certain things and beginning to kind of question more things when it pertains to religion in the black community. Um, and this question kind of goes towards what you mentioned earlier uh, uh, when you talked about 
and I didn't really think about it like that before, but how there was the black church before there was the black family. But some people do link secularism to the breakdown of the traditional family in the black community. Um, So what are your thoughts on this conversation or debate when it comes to that? You know, that's a real, you know, complicated you know, question, and we can't get into the weeds on it because all the terms in the question are are controversial. First mm-hmm. of all, the the very concept of secularism is, is controversial, and so people don't always agree about what it is that we're talking about when we use that term. Um, and then there's something, uh, you know, there's something implicit in the concept of traditional family that's questionable as well. <laughs> Because what's implicit uh, in that concept is that uh, traditional families are good. And we have mm-hmm. plenty of evidence to suggest that traditional families aren't necessarily good, that traditional families are places where uh, uh, spouses, female spouses, wives are regarded as, 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 as junior partners or, or as adult children. Uh, you know that there are patriarchal arrangements. Um, so, I, so I'm just I'm 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 responding to your question. I just want to sort of complicate things a little bit yeah, by, yeah, no, by yeah. saying that when the question is posed that way, uh, there are some premises uh, mm-hmm. that 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 need to be questioned. So, having said all that, uh, I, I would respond again by saying that the traditional black family. I grew up in a traditional black family. Traditional black families are a fairly recent achievement for all the reasons that I spoke of earlier. You know, under slavery, uh, uh, a, a traditional patriarchal family could not exist. Fathers had no patriarchal control within their families. Mothers did not have control over uh, their children. You were subject to being cut off from your children through sale uh, at any moment. You were cut off from your your ancestors because uh, of slavery. So you didn't have, you certainly, it certainly destroyed the traditional African family, you know, that was a more communal-based family that they brought with them uh, to the new world. And so the slave family was this sort of weird thing in which the slave master was, you know, metaphorically speaking, always in the bed you know, with the enslaved man and the enslaved uh, woman. The slave master was always in the household, you know, uh, interposing himself between uh, parents and and children who might want to discipline their children in a variety of ways. And so the traditional black family only emerged after slavery and it emerged slowly and with fits and starts. You can go back and look at, 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 at research and accounts of the black family in the late uh, 19th and early 20th century. And a lot of the maladies that people talk about now existed then as well. You know, so, you know, you know, high incidence of, of, of auto wetlock, you know, birth, so forth and so on. So I, I guess my response to that question is I don't think that secularism is a particularly compelling um, explanation for the breakdown of the traditional black family insofar as there has been a breakdown. So let's just stipulate for, mm-hmm. for, for, a, for a moment that some time after slavery, traditional 
patriarchal uh, black families were established. To the extent that they've uh, uh, come apart, I don't think they've come apart because of secularism. I think they've come apart uh, for the same reason the black family has always been under threat, because of white supremacy. Uh, because of anti-black practices that were uh, uh, that were recreated after the abolition of slavery, of various kinds of government policies which made it difficult for intact two-parent fa- two uh, households to survive uh, and thrive, and just all of the various assaults that black people in general and black families uh, in particular endure uh, in this society. I think all of those things are far more powerful explanations for why traditional Black families are in decline, if in fact they are in decline, uh, than, um, uh, than, than secularism is. Mm. I find it interesting how people really romanticize uh, Black family life in the past. And like you said, you know, sometimes the statistics um, and the history and the reality don't always shake out to, you know, these myths that we have about um, Black families in the past. So appreciate that. I know you also study um, like the intersection of religion and politics. And I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about how these two institutions have uh, intersected intersected historically and and now, um, as well as are there any links between like racial identity, religion and political orientation? There's a lot there. I probably could talk for half an hour on that. But let me let me let me let me take a stab at it. Um, so I spoke earlier about the way in which, for historical reasons, uh, the black church came to play a unique role in um, the black experience, a role that it did not play, didn't have a play a comparable role in the experiences of other people. And, and that had a lot to do with the fact that uh, black people were enslaved. Uh, they came out of slavery, they into a segregated society, society that was extremely hostile to them. Um, and the church is where they went to get whatever they could get. And so the church, you know, had this sort of outsized kind of role in, in black life. Black churches is, is where many people learn to, to read. They acquired their literacy before uh, they were able to get into public schools. Um, and the black church was one of the few institutions, perhaps the only institution in American society where you could acquire leadership skills. It's not a coincidence that for most of, 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 of black American history, and you only see this beginning to sort of die out, maybe I won't say die out, but, but recede within the last 10 or 15 years or so. Invariably, if you look at African-American history, you see a disproportionate uh, percentage of African-American leaders, African-American male leaders who are clergy. Why is that? It's because the church was an institution that was not under white control. It was a black space. It was a safe space. It was a free space where black leadership skills could be cultivated, developed, you know, without being subject to the surveillance of the white gaze. And so you just see just countless important, outstanding, you know, black leaders who've come out of the church. And of course, it reaches its apex, you know, with the uh, leadership of Martin Luther King Jr. 
look at the role that Jesse Jackson has played in the politics of, of Black America since the assassination of King in 1968. I mean, he was the man for a long time. Again, coming out of a black church and and civil rights, uh, you know, kind of um, a background, and we can go on and on, you know, and 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 just see that the um, the ubiquity and the importance of of, of the black church and a black uh, a clergy uh, in the leadership structure of the black community, and so quite naturally, um, the black church. Black religious organizations have always been on the forefront for fighting uh, for racial justice. Um, the NAACP and the Black Church, uh, especially in the early days, were almost interchangeable. The overlap in the membership between Black churches and the NAACP was tremendous. Remember when when um, when when King was asked to. Uh, you know, serve as president of the, uh, Mongo- you know, uh, 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 Montgomery, uh, Alabama, NAACP. He's, he's clergy. That was not unusual at all, especially for uh, NAACP uh, chapters, you know, in the South. Look at the look at perhaps the most important, you know, uh, 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 black elected, you know, politician of the 20th century. Adam Clayton Powell, Jr., clergy. Pastor of a huge church in, 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 in Harlem, Abyssinia Baptist Church. So I could go on and on talking about the, the, the tight connection uh, between the black church and the black political class and how that tight connection persists, at least in residual forms, uh, even uh, today. So I think for black people in particular, there's always been a close connection between, between religion uh, and and, and, and politics, uh, and e- even even in some non-Christian formations, you see this connection. Think about Malcolm X, for example. You know, uh, Malcolm X's uh, political maturation occurred within the context of him rejecting Christianity, which he associated uh, with white slave masters. Uh, and cultivating an Islamic identity, which he thought was more, more hospitable to the to the liberation and freedom aims of, of 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 black people. So here you have a kind of a non-Christian, you know, control uh, e- example to to sort of illustrate the point that I'm trying to make. Um, I think, and I certainly make this argument in, in some of my own writings that for for African-Americans, religion in general, and Christianity in particular, has almost become a constituent of Black identity. Now, this can be problematic if you don't regard yourself as religions, and if you, say, reject the Black church, that can be problematic because some people will see you as, as deficient and uh, defective and inauthentic in your blackness, because for them, you really can't separate uh, black religiosity, the black church, uh, and, and 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 black identity. And so, for many people, there is a a close connection, an intersection uh, between their racial identity, uh, their religious affiliation, and it does affect their political orientation. Uh, in a variety of ways, you know, for both King and 
Malcolm X, even though they made radically different choices, um, their their racial identity and uh, their religious uh, and their religious affiliations uh, were crucial to the kind of politics they adopted. <clears throat> so yeah, that because that's interesting because um even thinking about like today and um, you definitely highlighted the historical significance of churches, even like you said, with like the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and Martin Luther King and stuff like that, and and how that organization was a stepping stone into leadership roles and then also to political activism and stuff like that. Um, and even today, I've seen an article in the Pew Research Center um, that was talking about how, you know, there's across the world, there's noticing this trend that, you know, younger adults are becoming less religious than older adults, older adults being 40 plus and younger adults being 18 to 39. Um, so with this trend, and even in, say, the the cry, if you will, for more political engagement from people of color in the black community. But we don't kind of have, it seems like we don't have that nucleus of the black church like we did in the 60s and 70s. So how large of a role do you think religion will play in the black community and society now and in the future? Is there an alternative to kind of mimic what the black church was then um, to now to kind of increase or continue that political uh, involvement and advocacy? I don't think that the black church um, institutionally will ever or can ever play the same kind of outsized role in the ongoing black freedom movement that it did, uh, say, in the 1950s and 1960s, in part for some of the reasons that you just described. And that is that that there is a, a broad uh, society-wide and, and, and actually international sort of retreat from institutions. Uh, younger people are increasingly hostile to a whole range of institutions, not just churches. It's, it's government, it's educational institutions, a whole range of institutions. There's great suspicion of, of the institutional arrangements that young people you know, have been uh, born into. And religions are, are part of this skepticism that younger people have toward institutions. They're not necessarily less religious than their elders. In some cases, they're actually more religious than their elders. And they see institutions, religious institutions in particular, as, as being stultifying, as actually getting in the way of them sort of experiencing uh, their religious life in a more authentic way. But to bring this around, you know, to your question, I don't think that I think that other formations, including other institutional formations, will have to play some of the kind of role, some of the kind of of of, of organizational role, some of the kind of logistical role uh, that the black church played, for example, uh, in the 50s and 60s. We know that without the network of, for example, uh, African Methodist churches that provided meeting places and other kind of logistical support, uh, that a lot of what happened uh, in the King-led uh, part of the civil rights movement would not have occurred. So the black church was 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 crucial for that kind of thing. But again, I think that there's been in increasing differentiation uh, within the black community. There are more venues, uh, more institutional venues for leadership to emerge, uh, and for strategic and logistical kind of work to be done. So I don't think that the black church will disappear as a bulwark 
for the Black freedom struggle, I just don't think that it can ever have the outsized role uh, that it had in the past. I mean, I think there's a reason why the current uh, face of the Black lie of the, of the uh, Black freedom movement, Freudian slip of the of the Black freedom movement, is the Black Lives Matter movement, which is not a Black church-based movement. <laughs> employs some of the same techniques of direct action of making the powers that be uncomfortable, of trying to bring things to a halt, to bring maximum pressure on the powers that be. But it's not a black church-based um, uh, phenomena. It's outside the church, it's in the streets, and it's responding more faithfully to the variety of black peoples and the kind of differentiation uh, that's happened among black people. We know that, you know, that... Um, I'm looking for the acronym, which is at the on, on tip of my tongue. That that that, that the black people of, of diverse uh, genders and sexualities are at the forefront of the Black Lives Matter movement, whereas they were suppressed, you know, within the church-led, um, you know, civil rights movement. So um, I guess I'm not. I, I detected a a bit of concern in in your question about you know where do we go from here you know, given the kind of deinstitutionalization that's happening and the decline of the black church in that regard. But I'm, I'm not I'm not worried. I just think that that these energies, these struggles will migrate to um, to other uh, institutional uh, venues. Oh, nice. Thank mm, you. Um yeah, thank you for that. That was, you know, we we can keep we can keep the faith that even <laughs> without the the faith based institution that you know we can still uh, have a fight in in this struggle. Mm-hmm. Um, so those were, you know, the last of our questions. Um, was there anything else that we didn't cover that you want to add that you think is important? No, I think I think that those questions, you, you came up with a good list of questions. I think they got at some of the crucial issues um, about black religion. I, I guess something that we did not talk about that, that we could have talked about. And I think that it probably has something to do with the uh, decreasing affiliation among young, younger black people with with the black church. And that is how how slow and how resistant the black church is to the new gender and sexual reality that we inhabit. Young people aren't interested in playing none of that. Mm-hmm. You know, women expect mm-hmm. to have a place mm-hmm. at the table. They expect to be uh, in the forefront of leadership. Uh, people of di- di- diverse genders and sexualities expect to be able to bring them whole, their whole selves with them uh, when they enter, you know, uh, whatever site mm-hmm. they enter. And so many black churches, the vast majority of black churches are still resistant uh, to accepting all black people in all of their multifariousness. And I think that that's another really important mm-hmm. factor in the rise of the nuns, you know, among black people, that is those black people who aren't affiliated religious institutions, but especially, you know, among the young, uh, that they that there's a, a a a disconnect that they can't tolerate between the lives they live, you know, outside the church and the kind of lives that they're expected to live within the church. So, the church, uh, if it wants to have. Mm. 
some kind of allegiance from, I think, younger generations of, of Black folk is going to have to transform itself. I completely agree with that. And we we keep saying this, but that is a conversation that we actually want to have um, on BHD about um, the Black community and its resistance to change around, you know, LGBTQ issues. Um, so, yeah, definitely. And I'm happy you mentioned that. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely appreciate that. Is there anywhere where people can find you? Are you on social media at all or anything like that? Maybe, maybe not. I'm 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 old old school. I, I'm always behind the curve, so I I never got on Facebook. Okay, I certainly wouldn't get on Twitter. And and now with things that have happened recently, uh, I, I've only been reconfirmed in my in my uh, uh, decision not to, to get on social media. So no, to, to, to answer your question, no. Okay, no, I, cool. I'm not on social media, and you know I, I know that that is that is where people go to sort of interact today. Uh, I just I guess I just have decided that you know if I learn things that are important a, a week later. Uh, it won't be the end of the world. Yeah, yeah, you'll be fine. You know what? You are absolutely correct. But we will, um, you know, just provide the names of some of your books and articles so that uh, people can, you know, look it up and, and try to find your scholarly material. I appreciate oh, yeah. that. Yes, we will definitely Of course. Well, thank you so much for uh Speaking with us and having this conversation it was really informative. informative. I loved your historical take and, you know, all bits and pieces of information that you gave. So I'll thank you. all the dots. Yeah, well, thank you. It. I enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. <laughs> okay. So, Dev, what do you think about Do- Dr. Hart's conversation? I- I thought it was good. I thought he raised a number of good points and actually learned something. I I appreciate when we can interview people. I've read a lot of things and I just appreciate learning things that I didn't know before. So Mm -hmm. I appreciated everything that he said. And his last point about the need for the black church to be more inclusive and accepting of members of the LGBTQ community is so on point. Um, it's just true. Like we, we all sin. I don't know why that became the freaking sin that everybody just goes crazy about. Um, or I, I, and I don't even want to call that a sin. Like they're people, this is who they are. This is the way God made them. So I'm not even going to like, you know, maybe if they're doing something outside of marriage, that's the sin, but like, you know, they are not a sin for who they are. So I just want to make sure that is corrected on the record. But yeah. 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 I don't even get, yeah, to get, if people get into that, what's a sin, what's not debate, whatever. I feel like a lot of churches do try to be judge and jury and, and, and dictate what, how you need to look or what you need to do to be a part of this institution. And, you know, I don't know. I feel like why many, again, like he said in the interview, a lot of, you know, millennials and, and everyone else are kind of, almost being de-institutionalized in a way is because we're not really accepted to all these rules and regulations, right? Looking at Mm -hmm. the principles, like if it's about love and compassion and caring, I shouldn't only be love and compassion and care about you if you're heterosexual, right? Or if you're black or Mm -hmm. white or if you're rich. You shouldn't put these stipulations. It's about just uh, accepting those principles. And so I think this is what's drawing a lot of people away. Like you said, we're in a fast paced world now and 
if the church or these institutions are taking their time with being up to pace with everybody's doing with how we're thinking and how we view things, um, then you might be left in the dust, you know? Mm-hmm. And I just, for the record, the Jesus, I know didn't cast people out because of who they were. He hung out <laughs> with everybody. He hung Amen. out with everybody. Amen. So I don't know why you think you're too good, but that's just okay. Amen. But I, that's um, the point. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you go ahead and give him a quick word. Um, I think uh, I thought it was to me one of the more compelling things, the points that he made, which stood out to me too, was the fact of really had me think about like, yo, the religion and the church was there before the black family. I mean, the black family was deconstructed, um, you know, intentionally, systemically, where you know there was no real such thing as like fatherhood and motherhood and raising your children in the traditional fashion. Um, But church was there and doing certain things and and religion was there and Christian was, Christianity was, you know, uh, pushed upon them. And this is how one of the first things they learned to read, but it was just very interesting how when we think about the process and think about kind of the, I guess the chronological events happening, um, you know, and I feel like also this kind of makes sense for why the church is so embedded into the DNA of the black community is because that really was the first aspects to forming our kind of identity in this country when we were taken from Africa um, mm-hmm. and trying to refigure out how we can operate in this new world with, you know, dis, uh, t- uh, families that were uh, taken away and, 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 um, and people weren't together anymore, all that kind of stuff. Uh, it's just very, it's just very interesting. And I, you know, I'll probably think I'll probably spend more time like really thinking through that as I see more things or just think deeply about where we are today. Um, and it's like, God, it makes a lot of sense. Right. And even mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the question like, Oh, can secularism cause for the, you know, the, the breakdown of traditional families, well, like he said, and that was also a good point. Like traditional families are quite new a as new well. Thing. A new thing. <laughs> like, I think we also take that for granted. Like this is something that has always been just thriving in the black community uh, compared to other folk who have been able to safely do what they want to do with their families for generations. So definitely. I agree. That was one of the points that kind of really struck out for me because I just see so many people online. They just want to like romanticize things. Oh, you know, the black family used to be like this. We got all these out of wedlock births and, you know, all this stuff. Now I'm just kind of like, okay, yeah, it seems like it was maybe like a a curve to where it's kind of like, um, there was like not much of like this family structure early on and we We'll probably have similar statistics like back then. And then there was the rise of this like traditional black family after a period of time. But honestly, you know what it looks like now looks a lot like what it looked like, you know, before this later rise of what some people see as the traditional family, nuclear family. Um, so that's that's so interesting. But that that's another debate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that was good. But in general, I think it's just important to like think about uh, religion uh, and its relationship to politics, Mm -hmm. which was a a big point that he raised. And for me, I was really interested in that question because I know quite a few black Christians Mm -hmm. that supported Trump Mm -hmm. because, um, you know, I guess abortion or or I don't know 
what they consider like moral things, but it's just interesting how people pick and choose the morals that that matter because Trump ain't got very many. So yeah, I mean, this man <laughs> Trump only care about Trump. You know how it's like it's like Dylon, 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 Dylon. That's what Trump says. <laughs> so, <laughs> Trump, 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 Trump. He literally That's is it. like that. That's it. That's it. Um, and he just says a couple key words, and then people lock into those key words, and they're like, "Oh, he has my vote." Um, and I just feel like, like I said, like uh, the ch- uh, pastor of the church I used to go to way back in the day, you know, talking about how she voted for Trump, you know, because of his stance on like abortion and things like that. And it's like, whoa, you know, what about everything else? You know, everything <laughs> <laughs> like, else. I have a family member, a close family member. I won't say the actual relation it, it with my mom and my dad or my siblings, but, mm-hmm. you know, somebody fairly close. And they actually use God as a reason for why they voted for Trump. And I'm just like, <laughs> yeah. Needless to say, I haven't talked to them in a while because I just like, I don't even get that. And I'm just like, okay, I can't, I can't fool with you. Yeah. Like that. It's weird how you <laughs> pick and choose though. Like everybody has their pros and their cons and it's just like, okay, even if it's like for abortion reasons, but like this man is out here breaking up families right now. There's all this stuff going on with immigration and children, all these things that are coming up. Yeah. And it's like, you're now you're supporting a man who's like destroying families. Um, and just, I don't know, man, it's, it's crazy. Um, just, yeah, but, it was, a good but yeah, it was good. Uh, we still need to have that conversation about uh, immigration as well as a conversation about LGBTQ issues yes. in the black community. Um, so listeners, if you if you know anybody good, shout them out. Let us know so we can get them on the podcast. Yeah, let us know. Let us We've been know. looking around. And, you know, We've we're really been looking for somebody in for the LGBTQ um, situation uh, conversation. We want we want we want somebody to come and speak to us about that. Um, uh, who who who's researched in it, uh, well researched in it, uh, because we think it's an important conversation to have. Like he was saying, like Doctor Hart was saying, it's something that we don't talk about much in our community. It's definitely a taboo subject, and we want to be a resource to shed more light on that uh, for sure. So if you know anybody. Mm-hmm. Do not hesitate to, to at least give us the information so we can contact them. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure speaking of reaching out to us, we want everybody to ask us questions, right, Ty? And to engage with us on social media. Yes. As always, um, for those of you who've been here for a while, for those of you who are new to the podcast, follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at BHD Podcast. You can email us, bhdpodcast at gmail.com. Go on our website to check out all our episode, episodes in the blog at www www.blackandhollydangerous.com um, and we welcome all feedback share us share us with your friends share us with your family share us with your enemies and as always continue <laughs> to be the oppressor's worst fear <laughs> if you're interested in continuing this and other conversations visit our website blackandhollydangerous.com to subscribe to our email list suggest topics and participate in our discussion forums Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at BHD Podcast. And please don't forget to subscribe and rate our podcast on your favorite platform. And as always, continue to be the oppressor's worst fear. <laughs>